episode 429 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're about to express views that are not shared by our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, or even our pets. Joining me for the news roundup, uh, Sultan Meji, a scholar at the Cyber Policy Initiative at uh, Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Dmitry Alperovich, the co-founder and chairman of the nonprofit Silverado Policy Accelerator, and David Chris, founder of Culper Partners and former assistant AG for the National Security Division at the Department of Justice. I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur for today's program. It's been a while since we've talked uh, Ukraine and cyber, but with Dimitri on the program, we cannot fail to cover it. Dimitri, there were a couple of reports about how cyber is working out in the Russia-Ukraine war, and then a story about the UK government confirming that it's helping defend Ukraine, which is one of the least surprising stories I thought of the week. But it's an opportunity to kind of take a look at how cyber has played out as a weapon, as a defensive operation in the Russia-Ukraine fight. I thought Sultan would like this, that the Carnegie report on this was the best of the bunch. But how do you see the Ukraine-Russia cyber dimension? So it's complicated. And the thing that I think we really need to point out to our listeners here is that this is still very, very early days of the conflict. There's so much fog of war. There's propaganda being spread by both sides. In fact, if you look at another part of this conflict, the air war, RUSI, a think tank in the UK, has just released literally today a phenomenal report dispelling a lot of the myths that have been prevailing for the last essentially nine months of the conflict that the Russian Air Force was nowhere to be found. And uh, they're actually with a terrific on-the-ground reporting is showing that the Air Force was very engaged, particularly in the early days of the war, and has been able to disable a lot of Ukrainian air defenses that were statically in place and continues to be engaged to this day. So those are the things that we just have not been able to discover up until now. And I think it's even more true so of the cyber conflict. A little information is filtered out about the true state of that, of, the, of what the Russians are doing in the cyber domain against Ukraine. Obviously, it's not in Ukraine's interest to publicize it. So with that overall caution that it's very, very early on and we should be hesitant to draw any sort of lessons learned so far, I will say this. One, it's been very clear that even in the kinetic sphere, the Russians up until last month really did not have an overarching objectives to destroy much of Ukrainian civilian infrastructure to the extent that they were hitting civilian outposts and malls and the like with their missile strikes and airstrikes. It was mostly because they were actually targeting a defense uh, facility that was nearby and they were missing it. That, of course, changed last month when they decided to go on a campaign to destroy Ukrainian civilian critical infrastructure, their power plants, their water treatment facilities and substations and the like. Um, so so I, I think that lack of overall mission to destroy Ukrainian critical infrastructure can explain why we had not seen a lot of cyber attacks against that infrastructure either. And when they decided to go all out last month, it was clear that there was a preference for kinetic strikes because you could achieve permanent effects with those. The other part of the conflict in cyberspace that we have not seen a lot about, and again, doesn't mean that it's not there, but potentially an indication that there could be limited effects that the Russians are achieving, would be for against military targets. And here, I think one of the 
explanation is that up until very recently, the Ukrainian military was not armed with a sophisticated network weaponry that you could actually attack in cyberspace. You can't really do a lot in cyber against a D30 howitzer that is from the 1970s that doesn't even have a chip in it, much less a, a network connection. So that explains why you're not seeing a lot of Russian attacks against weapon systems, because you can't do a whole lot to them. And that would, of course, potentially be very, very different if you, let's say, had a conflict between U.S. and China over Taiwan with both sides heavily relying on much more advanced, modern, and, and network weaponry. But as the Ukrainians are starting to get more Western weaponry, like HIMARS, for example, which can be updated over the air, you could potentially see Russians get more engaged in the cyber domain against those weapon systems, assuming that they've actually done the work that's required to collect intelligence on those platforms, potentially get their code bases so you could actually develop sophisticated attacks. Not clear to me that they actually have done that and have been pre prepared for this conflict with NATO, NATO weapon systems. So it may take them a very long time before they're able to execute anything sophisticated against such platforms. And the last thing I will say, on the defensive side, we know that both UK and certainly Cyber Command and others have been engaged in sharing information and intelligence with the Ukrainians, uh, as have private sector firms as well. We know that they've provided some assistance on the incident response side. But I think it's really, really important not to rush to claim victory here, because A, this war is not over, and you could still see some devastatingly sophisticated and, and powerful cyber attacks from Russia, which would kind of destroy this narrative that we are so good at defense and protecting Ukrainian infrastructure. And two, I, I don't actually buy that narrative at all. It, you know, is on its face, I think, problematic because if we're so good at defending Ukrainian networks against Russian cyber attacks, how come we're not good at all at defending our own networks against similar attacks, even from non-nation state actors like ransomware crews in Russia? So I think the administration and people in uniform that are claiming credit for this wild success need to be very cautious because this is not over. And I think a lot of the reasons why we're not seeing cyber attacks being successful against Ukraine is, is A, that we just don't know a lot, and B, that perhaps the Russians aren't very active in the sphere. So one of the things that the Carnegie Report talked about that I hadn't focused on much, I heard about it but didn't think about its potential implication, was the the move of large chunks of the Ukrainian communication systems and IT systems from on-premises to the cloud, with a lot of help from Western companies like AWS and Azure. You, the, and, and Carnegie thinks that that made a big difference. Do you share that view? I do, but it's important to understand why it made a big difference. And in large part, it's because the Russians, frankly, to my own surprise, have been very restrained against going after Western targets with destructive attacks. So as the Ukrainians have moved to Azure and AWS and GCP, they basically, for now at least, have put a lot of that data, a lot of those systems off limits for Russian forces. So in effect, uh, because of I think there's a clear directive from the top in Russia not to go after and escalate against NATO. The Ukrainians have been able to, to leverage the safe havens, if you will, of cloud systems. That would not necessarily be true in a U.S.-China conflict, right? right? So there are benefits to cloud, absolutely, but um, 
I think a lot of the reasons why that infrastructure is still up may have to do with the fact that the Russians are, are very restrained and concerned about escalation. Let's move around the world, although keeping some focus on Redmond. Microsoft has said they think that China's policy, their new policy, which says that if you're a Chinese entity and you discover a vulnerability, you report it first to the Chinese government and then later maybe to the owner of the system. David, did you read the report to where Microsoft made that, that statement? I did, and what a delight it was. It's, it is an uplifting and optimistic thing that makes you feel good. It's an actually, I mean, it's a high-quality document, I think, and it shows a little bit the rise of private sector threat intelligence, if you will, at least in cyberspace. But uh, yeah, the issue is that, that we're talking about now, and I think we may return to uh, the report in general later, is that Microsoft's accusing China of requiring early disclosure of vulnerabilities under a September 2021 rule, and then using those vulnerabilities offensively before a patch is available. The accusation is carefully worded, and it's a little bit just noting a correlation in the incredible coincidence that China is very focused on zero-day vulnerabilities in the year after requiring them to be reported early. But uh, Dimitri will probably have a lot more smart stuff to say on this from a technical perspective. But from a, from a policy frame, I mean, I think there's a couple of related questions here about the vulnerabilities disclosure process, where you have some hard questions around timing. Because ideally, if you find a problem, a zero-day vulnerability, you want to have the solution in the form of, say, a software patch or some other mitigation measure already developed and maybe even deployed before the vulnerability is disclosed. Because when you disclose it, you know, the good guys know and so do the bad guys. But you're concerned if you take a year to develop the patch <laughs> or something like that, you know, in the interim, somebody else will find it and go to town with it. And so you have to kind of hurry. And you also may need to make some limited disclosures or may want to make some limited disclosures to certain key partners or players to help you develop the patch, particularly if it's got to run on multiple different hardware or platforms or whatever. So there's sometimes a phase disclosure process to a small group before the general disclosure in order to develop the solution. And now we have requirements to disclose to governments. And there may be reasons to disclose even if you're not required because the government agencies have a lot of expertise. They've got some very good engineers and they may understand things about the threat that could be helpful. And so this Chinese regulation requires that things be disclosed promptly to China. And as I say, according to Microsoft's report, we have the Chinese government leveraging that early disclosure not to patch the vulnerability, but to exploit it. So th this is a hard set of questions, I think, for Western companies that may really enjoy and like the stability of the US-led rules-based international order, but they also want to do business in China or subject themselves to jurisdiction of China or other companies. So they have a certain tension yeah. about how to manage their intersecting and possibly conflicting both legal obligations and business and policy preferences. So the, so. the, the, the Dimitri was on the first cyber safety review board yeah. that looked at Log4j and looked at the question, because that was the first time that China said, no, you report to us, and didn't find evidence that China was misusing that access. So this is a change of tone, although maybe not a change of evidence. Uh, Dimitri, how do you read the Microsoft report in light of what the CSRB didn't find. So, so at CSRB, we looked, of course, just at the log4j vulnerability, and we were able to ascertain that the Alibaba researcher that discovered that vulnerability had reported to Apache before they reported it to the Chinese government, and there were allegations which were not 
able to confirm in the Chinese media that Alibaba was punished as a result for not disclosing it within the first two days of discovery as the law requires. So we express concern about this law in our report because it could give the Chinese government an advantage, obviously, by getting the vulnerability information very early on. However, I will say this, this Microsoft report did not impress me in the least bit as far as this issue goes, because the only thing that the report is highlighting really is that there's an increase in zero-day vulnerabilities coming from China. There is really no evidence tying it to the disclosure law. Right. I've not seen any evidence that there's actually been a rash of disclosures from Chinese researchers of vulnerabilities. So correlation is not, does not mean causation. So I think, I think the evidence here is still pretty weak. And again, the law requires a disclosure within two days, but it does not prohibit public disclosure of that vulnerability. So, you know, you would expect that if this law is getting a lot of researchers in China to submit it to the government, that they would still be submitting it to public sources. And we just have not seen a lot of that going on. So I have long-term concerns about this law, as my colleagues on the board do as well. I'm just not sure that we're yet seeing the effects of it. And I don't think that this Microsoft report, report proves that yeah. at all. Yeah, I'll say just to echo that. I mean, it, it is very carefully worded. And the strongest they get is noting the increase in China's focus on and other nation state actors on zero day exploits. And then saying that this new regulation might enable China's government to stockpile vulnerabilities towards weaponizing them. So it, it is, is basically, <laughs> we said the same thing in, in our CSRB report, basically. Yeah. So it's more, it's carefully worded and almost hypothetical. It's still noteworthy, but I agree with Dimitri. It is, it's certainly not a straight up demonstration of evidence. Yeah, it is carefully worded, but uh, the heading, the headline in the record is Microsoft accuses China of abusing vulnerability disclosure requirements. The, oh, that's the mainstream media. That is, the, well, in this area, those headlines don't come out of nowhere. I can't help thinking that that was a line of attack that was suggested by the authors of the report when they handed it off to the record, but maybe not. Or, or, or at least or at least the public relations people that are promoting it. And so, uh, yeah, uh, which does raise the question, why is Microsoft picking that fight? But maybe they really are hoping to discourage that kind of use. I noticed that one of the zero days they didn't like was against their infrastructure, their, their software. They're just trying to make, <laughs> make it harder for the Chinese to, to exploit this regularly. All right. Well, let's stick to Microsoft because there's a really interesting story out of the protocol, Sultan, about the really, I, well, I was astonished, massive amounts of money Microsoft is spending to build up AI research in in China, which seems a little awkward since the government is pretty clearly trying to now is looking to do to AI what it did in chips. That That's going to be a big problem for Microsoft. And you kind of wonder how they got themselves in this deep. Well, it's a fascinating problem, Stuart, right? Microsoft has been building this AI infrastructure since 1998, yeah. which was kind of one of the first things that jumped out in the story from the protocol. The second is, is that they're saying billions of dollars developing not just AI technology, but AI talent. 
Now, you know, in my day job, I'm a professor at a major university where I teach artificial intelligence. And I got to tell you, 80% of my students are Chinese and 99% of them go back immediately upon finishing, right? And so you end up with a situation where we just aren't growing enough AI talent. And so Microsoft probably 15 or 20 years ago said, oh, this is a more efficient way of doing it building it directly in Beijing and Shanghai. And now all of a sudden, you know, decades later with it integrated into almost every product Microsoft currently offers, they are now coupled into, into this infrastructure. And so now, of course, we're having all these decoupling discussions, but it does speak to a pretty significant structural weakness in terms of Microsoft's operational AI capability is how much of it is actually landed in the PRC. Well, and America's too, I mean, because I'm sure that Microsoft is a is one of the five biggest investors in AI. Absolutely. And it's very possible that they're the largest Western investor in AI in China, yeah. which opens up all sorts of other questions. So the government has announced that it's going to decouple an AI, but hasn't it told us how. And I, we've been speculating that they've been trying to figure out how, having made the announcements, they now they have to make it so. Does this mean that it's really going to be, you know, the decoupling is, is more bad for the US than for China? I think it is. This is an interesting problem because the amount of integration across the various Western tech companies and the Chinese infrastructure is far broader than it is from a chip perspective, right? On the chip side, it's pretty straightforward. There's manufacturing over there, but there isn't a lot of primary R&D that all still exists in the EU and the US, right? In AI, it's almost kind of flipped. And so this is, I think I would not envy the people at the National Security Council trying to figure out what this landscape picture looks like so they can figure out a policy structure to work around it because the CHIPS model won't work here just because of how this is, how much different this is. Well, given how tough it is now to be a techie in China compared to like four years ago, what are the prospects for saying, why don't we just see if we can't get everybody to move here or at least to Vancouver? I mean, I think they've already bought up all the real estate in Vancouver, though. That's the problem, right? So, you know, I mean, great. What percentage of them are you know, internal versus external security people and stuff like that. Like the, if I was a Microsoft HR person trying to figure out, okay, we're going to bring 10,000 AI developers from China over, yeah. like, just how do you make that work? How many of them want to live in Reston, Virginia? And then all of a sudden, you know, everybody's eyebrows, you know, start waggling and stuff. It's, it's, I don't envy anybody trying to navigate just the human capital side of this, let alone the actual technology side of it. Right. Yep. And then, you know, a little later, we're going to talk about some black box AI stuff. And this just this makes that so much more dangerous. Yeah. But first, let's talk about ransomware, because the White House had a big, you know, many nation conference to talk about doing something about ransomware, which, according to U.S. Bank suspicious activity reports, is people paid out double this year what they paid out last year in ransomware. And I thought the report that the White House issued about what it had done was seriously underwhelming. Hmm. I mean, that, that hmm is me agreeing with you in a way that's going to try to keep me from getting in too much trouble. But yeah, it's just you have a ransomware event and you don't invite like the three countries or the, the three countries that are responsible for 90 percent of it aren't participating in it. So, you know, clearly somebody who was part of the old spam working group 15 years ago said, oh, we'll do the same thing. And then they're like, oh, but we forgot to invite the Chinese. Yeah. Um, so, and by the way, the BSA reports are great. And so it's 1.2 billion for the, for last year. 
this is a massive number that's going up, you know, maybe not quite logarithmically, but we're getting dangerously close to that. And the banking sector is woefully unprepared for this. So the more interesting part of the story is that at least that they're paying attention to it finally. Yeah. You know, as a former bank regulator, that makes me happy because nobody cared about it a few years ago. Problem is, this is like one of those executive orders that calls on Congress to do something. I'll scribble that on a napkin and leave it at the Hay Adams and, right. you know, it'll have the same effect, right? <laughs> Yeah. So, so I, can I disagree with that a little bit? Because I do think, having talked to a number of governments that have been involved in this initiative, that things are actually moving fairly quickly, at least for typical government speed. And, and of course, Ann Neuberger, the Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber, is running this initiative. And anyone who's dealt with Ann over the years knows that she's a force of nature and makes people do things that they never thought that they would be willing to do. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and, 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 and honestly, this is turning out to be the case on the ransomware side too. They have 36 countries plus the EU participating in this. And she's actually making those countries do things, including even India, that traditionally likes to talk a lot in these fora, but doesn't actually deliver them. And that is starting to change. There's a big focus on enforcement. And remember, like, yes, the perpetrators of ransomware attacks are often in Russia and other places that will be out of reach of law enforcement. But guess what? The cryptocurrency ecosystem that these individuals are using to get paid is usually not in those countries. It is usually in other places. The hosting infrastructure is usually not within the offending country either. So they've now set up a task force that Australia is going to be running. There's going to be focused on rapid action on the enforcement sphere, where it's going to be basically a clearinghouse where people can submit requests for action, bypassing the whole kind of AMLAT process that is traditionally used on the law enforcement side to coordinate with other countries that is very slow and cumbersome. And the entire focus is going to be on action, lesson learned. So we'll see how it manifests itself. But I have some hopes that we can make a dent here. It won't be, you know, it won't solve everything. But if we can shut down more nefarious actors in the cryptocurrency uh, ecosystem, if we can uh, make the hosting providers and domain registrars shut down uh, malicious activity quickly, I think that's going to be a huge win. Okay, Todd, that's fair. I, I'm I, I'm, I'm going to agree on one thing and disagree on one thing, if that's all right. So one is agree totally on Anne, force of nature. If anybody's going to get it done, she's going to get it done. And I agree mostly with what you just said, Dimitri. I think the challenge, though, is, and I'm going to double click on your crypto, your cryptocurrency comment, is that infrastructure is, is far harder to nail down from a defensive perspective than I think the U.S. government really thinks it is. Um, they're going to be able to get success out of that, you know, unless they go through the CFTC and try to make all of it illegal and then, you know, run it through the that enforcement structure that they've created at SEC and CFTC, which I think is fine. The But at the end of the day, is the that's kind of the reaction side of this. The thing that I don't think is actually going to get solved is the proactive side of stopping these things from happening. The average banking system in the United States is older than, it's like 15 years old, somewhere between 15 and 17 years old. They're running old mainframes. They don't have good cybersecurity practices. We haven't updated the cybersecurity requirements of the banking system in decades at this point. I lived this world and and I got to tell you that this is like trying to deal with the issue after the horses have left the barn, you know, actually put a door on the barn, which we're not actually putting any energy into. And so are we going to react to it reasonably well? Yeah, maybe. But 
why don't we actually stop it from having to be an issue in the first place? So what do you guys think about the, uh, the, the UK announcement that their cyber command is going to be going after ransomware groups? And there's been some cyber command disruption as well from the US. Is that a flea bite or is that going to make a difference? Well, it depends on what they do. And of course, the UK have traditionally been very aggressive in the cybersphere, doing a lot of things that even the US has not been willing to do, particularly against uh, counterterrorism threats. So look, I've been a long proponent of needing to involve cyber offensive capability, both on the US side and, and allies against this problem, because there's a lot you can do to mess with these people. You can sow distrust between them because it's not usually one individual that's doing this activity. They work in groups. You can go in and steal their crypto wallets and deny them the benefits of this activity. You can uh, inject bugs in their code where the crypto won't quite work well or can be reversed. There's just an enormous amount of things you can do to mess with them and slow them down and make the operations much less effective. You can out them publicly and expose them to the world. So absolutely, I think this is a good step forward and I hope that they do some really aggressive stuff against these guys. I think it's long overdue and I'm even, I think even stronger on this than Dimitri. We have an amazing offensive cyber capability here and we shouldn't just leave it in our back pocket. These guys are far easier to mess with in the ways that Dimitri described than, than, than not. So let's go. All right. Okay. So um, David, I, I, this is something that we've talked about in the past. It's the insurance condition that says we'll, we'll be glad to pay for your cyber losses unless they are caused by what amounts to an act of war. And companies, cyber insurance companies have begun saying about things like not Petya. No, that's, that was, too close to an act of war, we're not going to pay you for the cost you've incurred. And the guys who make Ritz crackers, a company called Mondelez, sued their insured Zurich for a lot of money, hundreds of millions, I think, for their not pet you losses. They just settled. So I guess that means we just don't know whether the the clause that says if it's too close to an act of war, we're not going to pay you really covers this sort of thing. Yeah, well, this particular settlement, I think, is still confidential. You know, eventually its terms might emerge and then we would gain some insight into how the parties saw the strength of their positions around the interpretation of the exclusion clause in the contract. But there is a prior decision in a state court in New Jersey that uh, did require the insurer to pay, did not find that a war exclusionary clause applied to not Petya. And, you know, I mean, a lot of these cyber activities, certainly from the government's perspective, are seen as sub law of armed conflict and treated as such. That doesn't mean the insurance companies have to treat them that way. And it's a huge, I mean, like billions, trillions of dollars at stake here because everybody wanted to get into the cyber insurance market because it was, you know, a way to make money. Now everybody is trying to deny coverage because <laughs> that's a way to give money up and nobody, uh, it's basic capitalism. But if you don't provide coverage for the kinds of cyber threats that actually exist, then people aren't going to buy your policies because they're not actually protecting against the maybe major threat vectors in the, in the area. So I would say the market and the legal regulatory state is doing its thing in a very slow way. This is five years in the making, this one, you know, or more than five years from NotPetya. And we're just going to have to see how it works out 
over time, but I know my own cyber insurance certainly has gone up in price and I resent it. Uh, so I, I know I want something done. Let's put it that way. Yeah, although over time, the way this will work out is the insurance companies never lose over time. Uh, <laughs> they never lose because they're really good at doing actuarial exactly. analysis. They're better than you are, which is why you're buying the insurance. Uh, you got it, brother. <laughs> and I think Lloyd's has already announced a, a very clear textual exclusion. Uh, yeah. And, and I'm sure that's going to be in everybody's the, policies going the, forward. No, I mean, I think the one thing that, that I guess I didn't mention that probably does have to occur here, or at least may occur, is a government backstopping for some of this. We saw that in the terrorism space back in the in the day when that was a very fashionable threat vector right after 9-11. And we may see cyber insurance risk getting backstopped by government, which would help make it available. And, you know, insurance, I mean, economists and others will tell you it's efficient and it spreads losses and so forth. And so that may be a good thing from a policy perspective. That could really shake up the market if the government stepped forward. Forward, yeah, I but I, 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 I go ahead, Dimitri. I think that's an absolutely terrible idea. I mean, you need insurance in certain markets, and that's where the government can come in and backstop it against catastrophic events. There is no case, I think, that has been made about why you need cyber insurance. I think a lot of companies have gotten a great deal over the years because they've been able to outsource their risk to the insurance providers, and the insurance providers in their attempt to take a huge chunk of the market. We're underwriting policies that made zero sense, but I don't see why the government has to go and bail out them. But on the Mondelez case, if I can say a couple of things, Stuart, because I've been following it very closely, the interesting part of this case was actually two things. One was, would this attack actually constitute an act of war or not, uh, just because it was committed by a nation state? And then Mondelez was trying to make an argument, apparently, of where's the proof that this was actually Russia? Obviously, you had the U.S. government coming out and making a statement that this was the Russian military intelligence, the GRU that was doing it. But unlike in other cases, there was no evidence that was provided. In it could have been the 400-pound guy in his mom's basement, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, uh, there, there was no identification of people that were responsible and so forth that we saw, for example, with the DNC hack in 2016 and some of the other cases. So the question is, how much evidence does the government really need to provide for an insurance provider to be able to use this to, to escape having to pay out on coverage? Is just a statement enough or do you actually need uh, at least an indictment, if not an actual conviction, that uh, you could then use in, in a court of law? So, so I thought that was an interesting argument to be made. Who knows how far they got along with making it before before there was a settlement, but it was an interesting attempt to try and discredit the government attribution here. Yeah, I would have thought that the government attribution by itself is not good enough unless it's backed by some action because the talk is cheap, even government talk, and that the the outcome was going to be that there would be act, an actual trial on who did this. You can certainly find experts who will testify on both sides of that, I'm sure. That's right. Okay. Artificial intelligence. Sultan, you promised we'd get to this. And there were two stories. The one I found actually interesting was not the one on facial recognition, which was just uh, rehashing all the old tropes, but nonetheless, about a law that we ought to, a, a bill we ought to talk about. But this one was an article that said, you know, as we've heard, it's not easy to explain how artificial intelligence arrives at the accuracy it achieves. And there was a lot of talk about the possibility that it might be, you might be able to get the AI to explain itself, but you would lose a massive amount of accuracy in the process. And I was puzzled about this. Is 
AI explainability, something in which you have to build a completely new engine to for your algorithm in order to have it be explainable? I mean, the short version is what we're working on, what we build right now today from an artificial intelligence perspective, for the most part, is not actually artificial intelligence. It's layered analytics. So A to B to C to D, right? And the minute you move from that into what we call deep learning systems, where the system itself begins to put in layers of analytics, mm -hmm you lose the ability to truly understand why it's making the decision it's making. We do not have what's called a modeling environment that would allow us to see into that and for the, the system to say, hey, I want to add a new layer at step 37 and it's going to look at these 87 things and this is why I think this is important. We don't have the technical capability to do that yet. In a few years, we will, but there's this window we have right now where the technical systems that we're using to build these AIs are not smart enough to actually decompose what the system itself is outputting. So this is this, so, this is sort of the machine learning version of saying you if you want to tell how a plant grows, you can't pull it up every week and look at its right. roots and put it back and expect right. it to work out. That's that's actually a really good metaphor, Stuart. I'll have to remember that one and steal it shamelessly. Please do. The that's what that's one piece of it. The second piece of it is because most of the people writing AI, and I'm going to get some hate mail on this, so just be ready. Most of the people writing AI right now are using really terrible tools like Python, which is not an amazing programming language. And they're using AI tools from big organizations like Google and Microsoft that are really designed for very narrow use cases, especially around structured data analysis for advertising. And when they take it and they throw it into drug discovery and they just throw all the data they have at it and they throw all of these things, at it, at the end of the day, what comes out of that system, they don't really know what they were doing and how it got to the right. result they were doing. So the second piece is, you know, we don't have millions of PhD mathematicians, bioinformaticists and others sitting on these systems. We have a bunch of people with, you know, undergrad and master's degrees like me who download a bunch of open source software, throw noise at it until we get a result we like, and then we ship it off to the boss. So we have two problems. One is the tooling, the modeling environment. And then the second is that the actual work being done is not done in a structural way that allows for us to then analyze it and articulate it and explain why it's doing what it's doing. Okay. So they're kind of two two problems at the same time. Dimitri? But, but Sultan, I mean, this has always been a problem with machine learning. It's, it's fundamentally a statistical, probabilistic um, estimate of a local minima or a global minima or maxima of a problem, right? So depending on the algorithm, you know, if you have a feature vector of a thousand or 10,000 different features, you're basically creating this hyperspace, multidimensional hyperspace, and you're saying that a dot is gonna end up at some point in that hyperspace because of its proximity to various other dots. And that's why, you know, you're going to be in, in this result and derive this decision, which was always very difficult for a human to comprehend. Why am I there? Because you have way too many d dimensions when you're looking at this stuff, even with sort of traditional machine learning algorithms uh, before you even get into deep learning, that you never had an explanation for it, an easy explanation that you could say this is why, right? I'm gonna push back just a little bit on, on that for only one small piece of it, which is the vast majority of the deep learning systems and these new non-knowledge proof systems are not using tens of thousands of data points. You know, they're using, and tens of thousands of features, they're using 50 features. And so the challenge is, is not only are we throwing massive amounts of longitudinal data, but the number of features going in are actually quite small relative to traditional deep learning, which is kind of the universe you and I come from, right? Where it's, you know, supercomputers and all that. This is, you know, stuff people are doing on laptops. And so they have to 
allow for that statistical uncertainty in the system because that's the only way those systems will actually work, right? And that yeah, I, I was referring to more traditional machine learning yeah. systems that have yeah. been used before deep learning, like yeah. supervised uh, supervised yeah. uh, algorithms like yeah. SVMs and others that yeah, yeah. have yeah. always been unexplainable. So I'm just puzzled yeah. that people are now realizing that machine learning <laughs> produces well, a result and you don't understand why it produces that result. We've always had that situation. Well, here's the funny one, Stuart, to take it out of deep computer science for a second. Back in the early 90s, I worked on a backprop neural net. It had four layers. It had 17 features. And I still couldn't tell you why it did what it did. And this was in like the mid-1990s, right? So Dimitri's point is very well taken. This has been true for 30 years and will be true for probably another 30 years. It is funny that people are now stressing out about it. And it's, it's important to see how far they've stressed about it, where you see the AI strategy coming out of the White House last month, I think, which basically says, and this is one of the stupidest things I've ever heard, that for any AI system, if a person feels like that AI system is discriminatory in some way, whomever offers that AI system has to have a completely human-centric system that allows that person to go back to that institution and have a human go through and do that exact same analysis. Yeah. So just imagine you are a grumpy drug lord or ransomware guy, and you're trying to route a payment through a bank and they flag it for fraud. You can now, under the <laughs> White House rules, complain and say, well, your AI that we use for BSA has, has totally got me wrong, um, you know, Mr. Russian oligarch, and you need to now redo this all over again. It'll bring the entire system to a screaming halt. It's, it's the most ridiculous thing. Yeah. I, I actually, and what it's going to produce, and I've talked about this in stuff I've written, is they're just going to send the AI to re-education camp until he understands, you know, uh, how woke uh, distribution is supposed to work. <laughs> I, 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 there's a quote in this article. It says that uh, they quote a, a, a computer scientist who says, well, if we ask it to do something like generate pictures of CEOs and it doesn't do what we like, it generates all white males. We just give it negative feedback and it learns and tries again. And we repeat that process until it's doing something we approve of, like producing a, uh, pictures of CEOs that look like America. This is called reinforcement learning through human feedback. It's basically saying we're going to build a bunch of woke quotas into whatever the AI does. And you won't even know that we built it in because you're going to get the algorithm and it's just going to do what it does. So they are taking unexplainability in a brand new direction uh, and we'll all be poorer for it is my guess. All right. Well, I'm upset about wokeness. There's another article about the Facial Recognition Act that was in Lawfare. The Facial Recognition Act, which is, which the author of this article liked, is every anti-cop, pro-criminal, AI bias measure you've ever heard of all rolled up into one and dumped into the federal code. Ted Lieu and a bunch of sort of leftish members of the Democratic Party are pushing this. I kind of think, you know, given where the um, election is probably going, that we're not going to see much of this. But I just, I was amazed. This Everything is in here. You can't even use this for criminal investigations without getting a warrant. It's, there's an exclusionary rule if you use this. It was, it was pretty remarkable. But I will, <laughs> this is, yeah, as I was introduced at a conference recently to the idea of an Israeli question. And the Israeli who was explaining it to me said, that's where you stand up and you give a five minute speech. And then you say at the end, isn't that right? Uh, so I'll turn my, <laughs> I'll turn that, 
into an Israeli question, Sultan. Uh, <laughs> do you agree with me? <laughs> <laughs> I, it, I I need to ask before answering. Was there a Palestinian response? <laughs> <laughs> I, I did not hear um, that. No. <laughs> okay. Well, you just said a whole lot, Stuart, and I'm going to highlight two things you said that I think are especially egregious. One is it's the kitchen sink, right? It's and it's the notion that all of these things can be taken as equal and lumped into a single piece of legislation that's not going to go anywhere because of tomorrow, um, or depending on when this gets released, right? The second thing that I found, and I'll just highlight one area that you didn't highlight that I'll, but I'll highlight as a way of getting grumpy to agree with you in, in emotional spirit. How's that? Yeah. Which is on the testing and accuracy portion. And this is just a ridiculous thing to require NIST, the National Institute of Standards of Technology, to test any and all law enforcement facial recognition uses prior to their deployment. Can you imagine how much we would have to fund NIST on top of what they're currently funded? to create an environment that would allow that to happen. And then you get California going one way, you get Texas going the other way and just the fights and all the energy. So just if you make this the gating function, okay, you can't use AI until NIST creates a system and creates a testing mechanism and blah, 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 all this other kind of stuff. I mean, that's a decade away and how many billions of dollars that the taxpayers are going to have to spend just to establish a system that won't even work. So I think this is, you know, kind of insane in its own way, but just saying the government is the best place to put a testing regime for facial recognition. I'm not convinced that's the right place. I would prefer government do standards, not testing, but that's a, you know, another kind. Actually, NIST has done some great work in this area. They've really tested a whole bunch of facial recognition tools for bias. And that's how we know that the bias stories from 2010 weren't completely wrong. And they are completely yeah. wrong now. Yeah. And uh, it's thanks to NIST's work. Okay, a couple of quick hits and let's uh, wrap it up. NSA had a report out on supply chain security in cyber. Sultan, what do you think? I think I'm shocked that people are surprised there's a supply chain issue with technology and cybersecurity. <laughs> I mean, I'm just shocked to hear that as a thing. It's a really long paper. It's actually really good. I'm very happy that we're kind of putting this kind of logical thought into it. But the thing that I worry about is like, what do we actually do about it? Right. It's a great article. If you care about this, go for it. But the guidance, I think, could be a little more direct and it could be applied directly to something more meaningful for a lot of us. Because at the end of the day, 99% of the organizations out there do not put any resources into this. And that's if it's just to get your board to, to put more resources into it, okay, great. Here's a big government paper. But beyond that, I'm not sure what value it can create. Yeah, eventually it'll become a best practices and a quasi-regulatory a quasi requirement sends my guess. Yeah. But I mean, that you and I could write that up in 15 minutes with five bullet yes. points right now. In fact, right? it's been a cottage industry in Washington for three years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Oh, and last story. We got through this entire thing and we never said the words Elon Musk or Twitter kind of remarkably. It's so, there's so much there and it's changing so fast that I'm not sure it's worth covering in any detail. I had two observations and you guys can take a free shot. One, there are stories indicating that the government is looking to do a kind of CFIUS review of the transaction. Uh, belatedly, obviously, Musk has, has bought Twitter, but he's getting some financing from a Saudi prince and from Binance, which was close to Chinese entities at its founding. And there, there are rules that allow CFIUS to say, if you give a 
foreign actor, especially affiliated with the government, access to certain kinds of information, like a, an observer seat on the board, then CFIUS can review it. I'm very skeptical that whatever, we don't know exactly uh, what kinds of information Musk has agreed to give to his lenders, but knowing Musk, it isn't much. And if it's access to financial data early or more detailed than you would expect from a public company, I just don't see that being of great interest to CFIUS, which is trying to protect, if anything, the private data of Twitter subscribers. Uh, I know. A bunch of the old PayPal guys are starting to come back to, are starting to move into Twitter. That's kind of the most interesting big impact of Musk acquiring Twitter is he's going to turn it into payments infrastructure. And so to me, I don't care if MBS's guys are looking at my tweets today. I care about if MBS's guys are looking at my financial transactions three years from now when whatever, they're going to rebrand Twitter as X and it's going to be the one app to rule them all. And that's going to, he's going to make it a financial services play. That's the part I worry about, whether it's Binance or MBS. Those guys have a pretty small interest, Uh, but you're right. It's, it, it it is, it, 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 it's a a possibility and, you know, more power to them since PayPal is is saying that if I say something they don't like, they're going to charge me $2,500. And since they have access to my bank account, they'll just take it out of the bank account, or at least they would have. So I would be delighted to find a payment system that isn't totally beholden to, you know, Generation Z fanatics. Oh, I was going to suggest Mastodon for payments, but that last uh, comment then I guess rules that out. All right, bummer. You know, Mastodon was the other thing that I was struck by. I mean, everybody has been saying, oh, oh, you know, what a fool he is. He doesn't understand that you got to have content moderation or you'll drive everybody away and you have to spend a boatload of money on moderation. Mastodon spends nothing to speak of on moderation. And, you know, Gab is part of the Mastodon decentralized family of, you know, public messaging. And, you know, there's been a bad reaction to Gab because they brought their reputation. But the number of of lefties who are rushing off to Mastodon to get away from a lack of moderation is kind of astonishing to me. Well, Stuart, I'm not sure I'm a lefty, but as someone who joined yesterday and has been playing around with it, I do think it's actually very interesting because you have different servers that have their own moderation processes that can nominate volunteer moderators that can be vetted. And then you can decide which servers you accept. So a lot of servers, for example, don't connect to Gab and some of these other extremist sites. So there is actually a lot of moderation built into the platform. Well, yeah, in, really in the same, yeah, I agree with you. And actually, I like, I like Mastodon because at bottom, I, I resonate to the Web 1.0 hippie attitude toward the power to the people. Exactly. And, and that's you. Decentralized. I've always thought that was you. <laughs> but I, I like the decentralized model. I, and that's why yeah. I actually like the idea that Twitter does not need a, you know, a party cell to sit in judgment on everybody's tweets. Uh, and so I think what we're going to discover is that Mastodon sort of works with a bunch of volunteer moderators and people reporting speech that they think uh, shouldn't be on there. And that's pretty much how Twitter operated and Facebook operated until 2016 happened and people realized that there were a lot of people they didn't agree with on these services and they had to be driven from the, of the service. And so I, I think it's a good thing. I don't think there's 
any hope, given the complexity of Mastodon, that it's going to replace Twitter. But people will go on Mastodon and probably post in two places, is my guess. You know, I'm like, Dimitri, I'm just sort of messing around with it. I don't understand it. And I'm like fumbling and stumbling my way through the thing. But I have followed enough people now on the Mastodon thing that like, it's the feed I'm seeing does look a little bit like my Twitter feed. It doesn't have all the richness and it doesn't have all the diversity of views maybe, but it's got a lot of the, you know, fun stuff that I follow. So who knows? I'm a little less pessimistic just based on my own narrow experience so far. So they're, 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 the one thing that they, the one thing that they're religiously refusing to implement is quote tweeting, which I think is going to be a big problem for people that want to reshare articles and what have you and comment on it. Ah, okay. See, I don't, I don't even understand how it works. I just am in a purely passive mode right now. Well, tell me which server you're on, and I'll try to expand the uh, Overton window. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, uh, I, David, Dimitri, Sultan, thanks very much. This was a lot of fun. To our audience, don't forget to send your questions, comments, feedback to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. If you leave us a review and we like it or we hate it, we'll probably read it. In fact, I've got one here. And I sort of do sort of like it. It's a little too close to the bone, but what the hell. Five stars from Justin Christian, who says, the host is the conservative uncle I wish I had. He's, he's <laughs> thoughtful and considerate in most of his, and considered in most of his opinions and openly invites debate across a wide spectrum of beliefs. This show is as close as I've found to a meritocracy and the host puts in the work to make sure he's working with facts and nuance. I have only one complaint that I'll let lie no longer. Stuart, please give the late John McLaughlin back his theme music. <laughs> so yes, there's a knock on our theme music, and I have to say I understand that, uh, but I'm still thanking. Can like, you can you work on your McLaughlin, like, you know, McLaughlin group imitations, right? Like, Freddy the Beatles. Yeah, Mars, I, right? I, 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 <laughs> David, you should do it. David, you're just wrong. Just wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, uh, This has been episode 429 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. 